coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. On paper, even in the research so far, it's like, yeah, we have this medicine that does what psilocybin does, but it does it in 45 minutes. So, of course, from an economic perspective, people are going to be thinking that this is uh, a better way, you know, if we can get people to the same mystical experience or the same level of awareness in a shorter time frame, then it might make more sense, which in some ways is true, but in many ways, because the, the experience is so much more potent and also there's so much more going on in the body, it requires maybe double or triple the amount of preparation and integration. So it's not just about the session. I think some of these companies are going to have their hands full because what happens when someone does a deep five immune experience, they're often spitting and thrashing and purging and screaming. And, you know, there's a deep primal kind of release of all the, the pent up energy that we carry as human beings. And then they're simultane- simultaneously having this peak kind of quasi religious experience. So I don't know too many drug companies or physicians that are really have a a paradigm for how to like hold that experience. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts. Presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. What if you could have a more potent mystical experience than psilocybin in a quarter of the time? 5-MeO-DMT could be the future of psychedelic medicine, but as Dr. Joseph Barsulia explains, this would require a complete redesign of our current model of care. On the show, we discuss the nature of mystical experiences, as well as our current understanding of the science of 5-MeO-DMT. Joseph reveals some of the drug development companies that are interested in medicalization, as well as his concerns about this process. We finish with the environmental considerations for the Buffal alvarius toad and lessons this medicine has for the psychedelic movement. Joseph is a PhD neurophysiologist and the former director of clinical assessment and research at Crossroads Treatment Center, which developed a protocol following ibogaine with 5-MeO-DMT. Trained with MAPS and initiated with the Bwiti tradition in Gabon, Joseph advises on psychedelic medicine and alternative healthcare. Joseph, welcome to the show. You are my favorite. I don't want to play favorites, but you are a preeminent expert on the subject of 5-MeO-DMT as well as Iboga. You and I have both initiated with the Bwiti people in the Congo Basin in Gabon with mm-hmm. Atum's lineage. So we've spoken at length around Iboga and that initiation, but we have not talked about 5-MeO before. And so today we have an hour where we get to chat about this particularly divine molecule and the sacred toads from whence it was first discovered. So Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eamon. Yeah, really happy to be here. And uh, this topic is top of the charts for me, near and dear to my heart. And um, yeah, it feels good to be talking with you after having connected recently on 
so many different topics and ready to get going. Why is this top of heart for you? Why is this particular conversation around 5-MEO's relationship to psychedelic medicine so important to you right now? For me, it's so important because what I care about is helping people heal and also helping people connect to their divinity or spiritual awareness. And I haven't found something more powerful than 5-MEO that can do that, actually. So to me, it's like really aligned with my mission and what I feel like is kind of needed on the planet right now. Well, then let's start a little bit by talking about your mission and your work in this space. So you were the director of clinical research at Crossroads Ibogaine Clinic in Mexico. When did that clinic close? Because I know it's closed now. Yeah, we closed in late 2017. And, and how long were you the clinical research director there? Two and a half years, yeah, before that. And so I understand that this was a program, there was a spiritual development component, but it also had an addiction component where people would take ibogaine and there was a protocol that involved ibogaine and the, and the protocol concluded with 5-MeO-DMT. And I was really interested. I've been interested for a while because I haven't really talked to one of y'all crossroad folks mm-hmm. about why that exact protocol. Can you tell me, I think for the sake of the show, just very briefly touch on Iboga, which won't be the focus of our conversation today, but just what the Iboga experience was like for the patients at that clinic and then why 5-MEO was the natural way of completing that experience. Yeah, so we were a clinic in uh, Baja, Mexico, where both these medicines are actually unscheduled. So they're not illegal, but they're not approved medical therapies. But there's many clinics that uh, are established throughout Mexico, actually. And Ibogaine is an extract from the Iboga uh, tree or bush that is found in Gabon. And it's sort of potency with with healing and is with addiction that you can take someone who's actively addicted to opiates or heroin and do an ibogaine treatment and they come out about 24 hours later clean sober not craving drugs or alcohol feeling relatively clear and it creates a a massive shift for for people that have had chronic addiction so our clinic started off as an ibogaine clinic and we saw I'd say 95% of people that we saw were all from the U.S. These are people that were addicted to pain pills after surgeries or using heroin. Most people were in drug addiction often or using multiple substances, so we saw people that were addicted to many different things. And over time, there was a practitioner that had lived in the Sonoran Desert and knew about the toad medicine and introduced that into the clinic, I think, in about 2014. And... So the Ibogaine experience is, uh, it's very long, it's physically uncomfortable, it's unique as a psychedelic because it kind of puts you in a, in a dream state. When you close your eyes, you're in the dream. When you open your eyes, you can kind of orient to where you are, so it's, it's pretty unique. And uh, it also tends to be a pretty physically uncomfortable experience, and people are processing a lot of just repressed memories, or it's, it's cleansing the body, and... Um, tends to not be very euphoric. It actually can be somewhat dysphoric, very, very unpleasant in some some ways. Afterwards, though, after Ibogaine, people feel can prof- feel profoundly um, clear and have improved mood. So 
what we were doing was administering ibogaine sort of in the, in the beginning of the treatment. And this involves a lot of medical screening preparation. And with ibogaine, we were um, had doctors present, nurses, because there is a cardiac risk with, with ibogaine. People would go through that experience, have time to kind of rest and integrate. And then towards the end of the week, we started administering Bufo to people. And this was something that is uh, administered through vaporizing. So you, you smoke it. And the Bufo has 5-MeO-DMT in it, but it also has some other serotonin family types of compounds, which we could talk about later. But the difference with Bufo is that it's, it's a very short, profoundly spiritual, mystical experience. It can be very euphoric. It can also be purgative and, and purging trauma from the body. And we found that uh, the combination of this kind of deep cleansing, this deep purification with the Ibogaine, this this uh, detoxification of the substances out of the body, allowing people to rest, and then having this really sort of expansive experience of connectedness and love. And people talk about it like a, a non-dual experience where there's this kind of awareness of oneness. It was profoundly transformative for, for people that were coming out of addiction. And over time, see, this would have been in 2015, Dr. Martin Polanco was the medical director, and then also Dr. Dan Engel was a co-medical director. And they were talking about this on, um, they were on the Tim Ferriss podcast and then the uh, Dave Asprey's Bulletproof podcast. I think this was in 2015. And we ended up opening up the program because of those um, introductions. There was a lot of people that just wanted to do this medicine, these medicines that were like biohackers or wanted to uh, just explore their consciousness. So we created a a condensed program that was like a weekend program where people did Ibogaine day one and then 5-MeO on day three, coupled with coaching and preparation integration. So we were operating for a long time. And um, what happened at the tail end of Crossroads is really interesting. There was a lot of um, veterans that started coming to us. And the clinic closed because there was a lot of kind of legal drama in Tijuana. where There's a lot of crooked law enforcement. So they saw this kind of travel tourism industry that was like in a gray market. And they ended up going to all these Ibogaine clinics and like wanting to be paid off essentially, which is common in, in the Baja region. So Martin was just like, this is not how I want to be operating. So he closed the clinic and um, we continued to treat veterans and he continues to treat veterans to this day in Mexico, more like in a pop-up format as, as needed. So the medicine from experiences from those clinic has from that clinic has continued through his work with with veterans and an organization called the Mission Within and those treatments are sponsored through a group called Vets which is Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions so that's continuing and uh, is amazing clinic i mean there is uh, a lot of people that came in as facilitators we had an ancillary program called Being True to You which is run by Dean Adamson oh, yeah that's Dean Ian Adamson. Yeah. 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 So she was doing all of her kind of prep and aftercare and had a really robust kind of preparation integration protocol. And uh, yeah, we probably treated a few thousand people. And in that time, my, my job was I was, you know, I'm a psychologist. So I was assisting with some of the protocols, but also as a researcher documenting sort of the observational outcomes of what was happening. So what, what was the long-term kind of efficacy how is this helping people long-term? And then also some of the subjective experience. So we published some papers from the clinic. 
Yeah, I actually wanted to um, talk about that. So you co-authored a paper with Roland Griffiths about the intensity of the mystical experience. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, in my experiences with this particular molecule, it has to me, it's the most mystical of the mystical experiences. Yeah. You know, like each of the medicines have their way of working, but with 5-MeO-DMT, I feel like it's the closest brush with the divine. So much so mm-hmm. that I like to uh, jokingly refer to it as speed dating with God. <laughs> so I was wondering, can you share um, the findings of that that paper with Roland Griffiths around the mystical experience when you were comparing 5-MeO with a mushroom experience? Yeah, so that paper was was interesting and I think novel in the sense that there's been very little research with 5-MeO. Now there's more, it's been mostly observational. But at the time, no one had really kind of quantified or characterized what, how does this experience compare to other psychedelics. And so the mystical experience questionnaire is something that's been used for decades in psychedelic research to assess these different facets of what would even be mystical experiences outside of psychedelics? So like classical kind of meetings with God or aesthetic meditation experiences where people have these spontaneous quasi-religious or spiritual experiences. And so the facets of the mystical experience really simply are, number one, having a unitive awareness of, of, of oneness, that everything is interconnected. Secondly, that you transcend time and space so you lose sense of kind of where you are and you're catapulted into some other type of dimensional experience or out of this kind of waking state. Third, that there is a really peak sort of emotional experience. And then fourth, that it's ineffable. It's beyond language. And when we come back from these experiences, it's language just even seems silly to try to to really describe what happened. And so this is something that's been used in LSD research and psilocybin research. And so it's kind of a really easy way to compare, uh, contrast the experiences. So we gave this questionnaire to people after their 5-MeO-DMT experience and found in that paper, it was a small small group. And what we did was uh, just used people that were not in addiction because they're a little bit medically easier to characterize. Although we, I also looked at addiction later. And so what we found was that essentially we were using about 50 milligrams of Bufo, which is about five to seven milligrams of synthetic 5-MeO-DMT. And what we found was that the vast majority of people that went through Bufo had a full-blown mystical experience in all of those different facets that I mentioned earlier. And that the intensity of the mystical experience was on par with like the highest dosage of psilocybin that's ever been administered. And that was done by Roland Griffiths. And that's kind of roughly equivalent to what would be like a hero's dose of mushroom, something like six grams, something like that. But what's unique about 5-MeO is you go there in like seconds and you come out in 10 minutes or so. And so it was novel in that sense. And the questionnaire that we gave people it assesses all different kinds of sets of phenomena, but the most commonly reported phenomena out of this questionnaire is that people had a sense of awe or awesomeness <laughs> from the experience, sense of peace or tranquility. I published a poster on this that showed from that data, like about 80% of people said they experienced something profoundly sacred or holy in in this with this medicine. And so that questionnaire kind of captures 
that aspect of it, but I would say there's so much about 5-MeO-DMT uh, that is that is very different from psilocybin. So, you know, a questionnaire can only get like one slice or kind of narrow lens of experience and they're, they're, they're very different. But on that sense of the mystical experience, 5-MeO is on par, if not uh, a greater kind of intensity of being able to catalyze a mystical experience. You know, that this brings me to a question that I'm personally interested in and I think is relevant to psychedelic therapy. I have heard anecdotally that 5-MeO is notoriously difficult to integrate because it's such a big experience and it happens so quickly. And I found that in my own experience that it's sometimes difficult to remember what has happened. So you have this beatific oneness, this connection to God, this feeling that everything is going to be all right, and the waters recede so very quickly. Um, and I'm curious in the context of the potency of a mystical experience, now we're kind of moving away from the idea of a survey, but in your own experience of witnessing many people having this experience and then talking about the integration, whether that's through Deanna Adamson's work or through your own integration coaching, mm-hmm. Why is it that the five MEO is so difficult to integrate? And is there anything that we can that we can do to bring more of the wisdom that we have in those experiences into our waking life? Yeah, I would say it can be difficult to integrate because it's it's short, it's a, a, a brief experience, and it also kind of takes you from egoic consciousness or your waking consciousness into such a radically different kind of experience experiential realm that can be disorienting and then you're kind of dropped back in. So I think the the transition and the the duration of the experience are 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 like that in a sense that it can be hard to bridge those worlds to bridge the two. So what we found was that doing um, lower dosages or multiple doses helps people retain more also, if people take too much, you you go to a place where you just kind of white out, and your your memory's not online, so you're not really taking much. You're not encoding or be, being able to really take much back from your experience. So, I think some of that can be can be prevented and enhanced by the the way that it's being administered. And I would say, in being able to go back to it and integrate it, I think a lot of it's about feeling what was released, recalling in the body what it what it brought up and what sensations were connected or or activated and seeing how that wants to express through the body after the medicine and some of the peak awarenesses too like the unitive consciousness like if you go into a place where you realize literally everything is interconnected and there's no accidents uh, and all sides of reality have have a place uh, and a time and a place if you're living your life from that awareness, uh, that can profoundly shift everything in terms of how you see yourself, how you see other people, how you see people that have differing views from you. You know, this this year is maybe like the peak year of polarity, of political polarity, of racial polarity. And, and I think going into a unitive experience, if we can really embody that as a, as a virtue, we can live from that place of really seeing that there, there's there's no one that is a, an alien or that is other and uh, live more from the heart. So let's talk about the science. We're not going to talk about Bufo generally because I think we're going to get into like a pretty complex <laughs> conversation mm-hmm. that I, for one, will not be able to track. But just 5-MeO-DMT itself, what do, how much do we know about what's actually happening in the brain during this experience? There's been like 
very little research, uh, human research so far. We know pharmacologically it works on serotonin. It's a serotonin agonist, which means it, it releases or stimulates the production of serotonin. It does work on these kind of classical psychedelic pathways. People talk a lot about the, the 2A serotonin, 2A receptor that LSD and psilocybin work on. So <clears throat> it does have an effect on those parts in the brain or those pathways rather. It also works on something called sigma. Sigma receptors are associated with like inflammation and also neuroprotection. So we know that 5-MeO, it stimulates serotonin. It also, in some of the basic science studies, has been shown to create neurogenesis or new, new brain cell growth, also be neuroprotective. And the, uh, the sigma receptor that I talked about before, that stimulates something called BDNF, which psilocybin also does this. But these are neurotropic factors, which are basically like the building blocks of a brain cell. So there's been some rat studies that show that 5-MeO-DMT regrows or stimulates brain cells in mice in like the hippocampus, which is like the memory center in the brain. We know that 5-MeO has like anti-addictive properties. It has antidepressant properties. And uh, a dear brother of mine, a fellow researcher who is recently deceased, Juan Acosta wrote a I think he, he was a pioneer. I think he published the first EEG brain scan study with 5-MeO, which he did with 5-MeO and also NNDMT. But he showed that 5-MeO essentially puts people into like gamma states, which are states of oneness, um, kind of hyperconnects the brain. So 5-MeO creates a sense of like what's called coherence in the brain, where everything in the brain, all these different networks are all talking to one another. So we, we do know that. But yeah, to date, there hasn't, haven't been any like fMRI studies or MRI studies, PET scan studies with, with 5-MeO. So it's really, really young in terms of as a, as a psychedelic molecule in the, the landscape of psychedelic research, I would say. Well, and, and it's really young in terms of the research, but drug development companies already have their eyes on it. It is short acting, which seems to be a very important thing when we talk about commercializing and industrializing psychedelic medicine. So the ketamine experience is preferable to the psilocybin experience, not because of the efficacy for treating particular disorders, although that I think that's part of it, but just the duration, because it's so very expensive to have, you know, if you're doing uh, MDMA or psilocybin experience, say you're doing MDMA with the current MAPS protocol that's going through the FDA trials, that's two therapists and it's very expensive, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. So drug companies are, you know, wanting to get the most mystical experience for their buck, <laughs> uh, for, yep. you know, and and the most firepower you can possibly get is, is 5-MeO-DMT. So, when we spoke previously, you told me that you you're actually aware of some drug development companies that are interested in this molecule, and that there's a lot of talk about it. Now, I'm not aware of this at all, so I think as a, as you pointed out, a new molecule from the research perspective, and a new molecule from the ceremony perspective, right? Like this doesn't have an ancestral lineage to it in the way that ayahuasca does. It's kind of yep. fresh in many ways, and yet it may become a a feature in the psychedelic medicine toolkit for all the benefits that that may accrue to humanity and all the potential challenges. So who's trying to make drugs out of this right now? Who's not trying to is the question actually <laughs> in the far, in the psychedelic landscape. It's uh 
there's multiple companies which I can talk about in a moment, but I think you know you identified off the bat kind of the sacred nature of this experience, and my my feeling and also my concern with this is that this experience is so transcendent, so sacred, and requires so much. I think really good preparation integration. It's kind of like in a class of its own. It's it's in of course the psychedelic landscape. It is a psychedelic, but the type of experiences that come up, both from a sacred perspective, also from like what's happening in the body, are are pretty different and several orders of magnitude greater than than what you would see in like a psilocybin session or an MDMA session. So. A lot of the companies in the space, uh, you know, they're all coming from different places with different backgrounds and different boards and scientific advisors. And I think the the most essential thing with this is for people to come from a place of direct experience and um, oversight with it. Because on paper, even in the research so far, it's like, yeah, we have this medicine that does what psilocybin does, but it does it in 45 minutes. So, of course, from an economic perspective, people are going to be thinking that this is uh, a better way, you know, if we can get people to the same mystical experience or the same level of awareness in a shorter time frame, then it might make more sense, which in some ways is true, but in many ways, because the, the experience is so much more potent and also there's so much more going on in the body, it requires maybe double or triple the amount of preparation and integration. So it's not just about the session. Um, and what happens? I think some of these companies are going to have their hands full because what happens when someone does a deep five meal experience? They're often spitting and thrashing and purging and screaming and you know, it's a deep primal kind of release of all the, the pent up energy that we carry as human beings. And then they're simultaneously having this peak kind of quasi religious experience. So I don't know too many drug companies or physicians that are really have a a paradigm for how to like hold that experience. So that's that's kind of my soapbox. But to answer your question, so some of the the companies that are working on it are um, the one that's the furthest ahead is called GH Research. They're a company in the Netherlands, and they actually have done the first human clinical trials with vaporized 5-MeO DMT. And uh, you can track that study on like clinicaltrials.gov on the website. And they're moving into doing intramuscular 5-MeO DMT. So kind of like uh, ketamine is injected, they're they're using that kind of route of administration. Well, can we can we pause on that really yeah. really quick? That's crazy. Um, <laughs> what 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 would that? <laughs> I mean, I just it's such a big experience. An intermuscular dose would that end up being? Would that dose last longer? Would it be more intense? Do you do you happen to know the difference between the vaporized five meo DMT and actually an intermuscular experience? Yeah, so it's a slower onset. So when you vaporize something, it's just like boom right to your brain. You know, you're you're in it. When you have an intermuscular injection, there's a slower kind of metabolism. So the onset of it is more smooth or slower. It does last longer. It's more like an hour versus like ten or fifteen minutes. And then the time to resolution is longer too. So when you when you smoke something, when you smoke five meo DMT, you're catapulted into it, and then you're kind of catapulted back out of it in some ways. And so. The intermuscular injection is nice in a way because it gives a longer working window and a little bit easier kind of entry in the sense of like you can kind of acclimate to the levels of having your consciousness expanded without feeling like you're kind of shot out of a rocket ship. So in some ways, I think it's it could be preferred um, 
there was one like observational paper that compared intermuscular to vaporized and people actually had, uh, I think less kind of challenging adverse effects and also less reactivations. This is reactivations is something that's unique to 5-MeO where, you know, days or weeks after in your sleep, you can feel like you're going back into the medicine. And that, that seems to happen more frequently with, with, uh, the vaporized route of administration. But what's nice with the vaporized is like, you can kind of stair step into it, which is what a lot of facilitators have done. And it's a short commitment. Whereas if you have an injection, like you're in it, you know, you're, it's a commitment that you are, you're on the ride for 45 minutes. And also this medicine is also like a subjectively dosed sometimes. So you want to help people get to the threshold where they're in a non-dual space, but not in a whiteout or, you know, they're not going too far into it and they're also not underdosed. So the vaporizing allows a little bit more of a kind of a, a handholding in the present moment kind of responsive dose administration. And, and people do have varying doses that they need with this medicine to have a breakthrough. So it's interesting. All these companies are proposing different ways to take 5-MeO. The ways you can take 5-MeO is you can vaporize it. You can take it sublingually. You can't swallow it because the um, monoamine oxidase in the stomach degrades it, so it doesn't have an effect. You could do it intravenously, intermuscularly. People do boof, boof it. They do use it rectally, um, synthetic. People do boof bufo? Yes, this is a thing that people do. Wow. Yes. and uh, it Seems risky. Yes, it is interesting. Maybe you get enlightened from upside down, I don't know, <laughs> inside out. Okay, well, you were talking about, you said there's a company in the Netherlands that is the furthest along, and you're saying that they're doing trials both with the vaporized 5-MeO DMT and then also intramuscular. So when you say that they're the furthest along, can you project when we might see something like this actually coming into use as a medicine in a retreat center somewhere? Or I mean, obviously there's a lot that would need to happen politically and logistically, but just from the perspective of drug development and testing, do you see this as something that, that could happen fairly soon? For sure, yeah. So there's those companies. In drug development, you have like preclinical animal studies, toxicology studies, and then you kind of move into human studies. And we're kind of at the preclinical or like phase one human subjects kind of stage, and it needs to go... For FDA, you need to go through three three phases, so it's still got a ways to go. But there's other companies that are more like in the preclinical stage, like um, you know Beckley Foundation. They have a for profit company, Beckley SciTech. They're doing preclinical work with five meo. Um, there's another one, Entheon Biomedical in Canada. They're doing preclinical on DMT and five meo DMT, mainly for addiction. I'm an advisor for Journey CoLab. We're also looking at. 5-MeO. So you're advising G Journey Collab? Yeah. I, I love Daniel Clausen is a is a good friend of mine. And oh, I really like their their ethics positions. And Sutton King is going to be on the psychedelic therapy podcast. I really like the work that she's doing. And there's a kind of like awesome. um trust-based stuff that uh what is it called? The I, I, I'm wanting to call it land trust, but it's not is it there's like a it's an indigenous some kind of co-ownership thing they're doing. Yeah, they have they have the Indigenous Medicine Trust, which is allocating money towards peyote conservation and indigenous land preservation. And then also there's sort of a co-ownership model in a sense, like partners or therapists or people that are involved in the company, they kind of have a distributed sort of economic model of ownership with the company. And 
I, I've been asked by a bunch of companies to advise and I've looked at so many different companies and to me, Journey Collab's like a, a beacon template of like what a psychedelic company should look like in terms of like their ethics and their values and being inclusive with access to treatments, ethnic diversity, giving voice and uh, space for indigenous input into what they're doing. And they're, they're using mescaline, uh, advancing mescaline for alcoholism. But to me, they were the first company that I saw and that I've spoken with that I was like, ah, somebody actually like kind of got the model of how to build a psychedelic biotech company that doesn't feel like a Pfizer or something. Well, yeah, let's let's use that as a segue to talk about specific concerns around medicalization of 5-MeO-DMT. Um, we've already talked a bit about it. Obviously, you know, 5-MeO-DMT experience is very shamanic. As you've pointed out, yes. it's a primal yelling, the, 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 the style of energetic purging that is possible for someone can be pretty extreme. And trying to like jam that into the very sort of sterilized, you know, Western medical model seems like that's going to be pretty tricky. What are some of the other concerns around trying to create this in the paradigm of Western medicine? What are some of the concerns that you have? Yeah, this is like a really central question, perhaps the most central question with this medicine. And what this medicine shows us, and I think medicines like ayahuasca is, really how much we hold in the body, how much our emotional suffering, our generational trauma, our trauma, how much it's like in your tissues, in your organs, in your gastrointestinal tract, it's it's distributed through the body. And with this medicine, the thing that blew my mind as a psychologist was how the body heals with this medicine in and how it can heal in such kind of primal ways. And I think because 5-MeO-DMT is so somatic and energetic, it requires that kind of lens in, in developing the right setting and context and preparation and integration for it. And the problem with Western medicine is that it's been profoundly Cartesian mind focus, the sufferings of the mind. We have to treat the brain um, going through kind of a cognitive kind of lens. You haven't seen things like energy work or uh, hands-on somatic therapies make it into mainstream psychiatry yet. It's That's changing for sure. But it's a very small percentage of people in the mental health realm or, or psychiatry that even understand the nuances of trauma in the body or the energetic body or the the pain body and how we can how we can move levels of unprocessed experience through the body so there's there's other disciplines that that do that like ener- energy psychology somatic psychology but those things are not they're definitely not present in psychiatric drug development you haven't seen like a somatic therapy protocol be woven into an antidepressant study or something like that so what it will require is like a really kind of nuanced and I think interdisciplinary combination, if someone's going to move this drug, 5-MeO-DMT, forward, of pulling in the best of somatic psychology, trauma psychology, energy medicine, and probably people doing like hands-on work with people before, maybe during and after a session to help move some of this through. So we haven't really seen that. You see a little bit of that. Like I was trained with MAPS and worked in MDMA studies and you see permission to to touch clients using healing touch 
uh, or to, to bring in some kind of somatic experiencing techniques. But I think this is going to be kind of in the deep end of that in terms of what, what happens on 5-MeO-DMT is often not very, there's not a lot of mental content. There may be insights and awareness, but it's just this kind of really deep energetic physical experience. So we need physical and energetic supports and really a way of understanding how to help people move through the layers that they're holding in their body and how to expand the body. There is some beautiful work that's been done like Judith Blackstone and people that have looked at the intersection of, of trauma psychology, embodiment, as well as like non-dual philosophy. So like how to help the body awaken to its own consciousness and to a, 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 a greater consciousness. Because when you're in trauma, you're in depression, your whole body is shut down, your whole consciousness is constricted. So I think there's a, it's a really cool opportunity to bring together the best of these different kind of cutting edge fields in, in somatic and trauma psychology, energy medicine with 5-MeO-DMT. And I think if someone tries to move 5-MeO-DMT through, like without that kind of lens, they're going to have a lot of problems in, in the clinical studies. And, and I don't think a lot of these companies, I haven't seen that they have these kind of safeguards in place or this kind of even understanding of the medicine. They're just kind of looking at it like something that catalyzes a mystical experience in 45 minutes. And they're excited about doing that, you know, cause it seems really powerful and potent, which it is, but it's requires like a, a much broader landscape of understanding to, to really do it right. And so to, speaking of guardrails, 5-MeO-DMT is very present in a gray market environment. And the guardrails, such as I understand them, are in the form of peer-to-peer support and specifically a group called the Conclave. And my guess is, is that the Conclave is like Fight Club in that <laughs> <laughs> you're not supposed to talk about it. But you know, I actually don't know that much about this kind of organizing body of 5-MeO-DMT facilitators. Can you tell us a little bit about the Conclave as much as you're willing to share, but specifically what lessons have been learned from the, from the way that knowledge is shared through the Conclave in, in terms of making these experiences and sessions safer, um, the integrity within the community generally? Yeah, what's, what's great about 5-MeO-DMT is that you know, there has been a rich history of underground use for many years. It wasn't even scheduled by the uh, the DEA until 2009. So there's been many, many thousands of people that have used this, longstanding guides and facilitators and practitioners that have used this medicine through through different means, primarily through, through vaporized administration. Also, uh, there's a lot of therapists in years past that use it intranasally. There's a nice book that Ralph Metzner wrote called The Toad and the Jaguar, where he he talks about some of his experience. And he was a kind of a pioneer with 5-MeO-DMT. And so groups like the Conclave, the Conclave is like, you know, all these practitioners that wanted to pool all their wisdom and resources and really create best practice guidelines, which is something you do in the field of medicine anyway, which is like you have kind of a consortium of minds come together and pool together their wisdom experience in, into kind of like centralized um, wisdom sources or documents or protocols. And so the Conclave is a, it's an anonymous group of people that has done that and they actually made it available publicly, which is, which is uh, a gift. So it's like their website is uh, theconclave.info. And what they've done is they created a best practices document. Like what is a ethical, responsible way to be, handling this medicine, codes of ethics, 
for practitioners and also integration guidelines. And the sort of gray market or underground scene with this is it's, it's very mixed. So, you know, I feel good about it because the medicine is healing people and it's spreading, but I also have seen really um, adverse effects and a lot of damage that's been done. And so I think the conclave wanted to pull together these resources to kind of help shepherd or steward people that are looking in into it. And the reason I think there's been a lot of adverse issues with this medicine is because it's, it's so strong. It's like, you know, the peak psychedelic, one of the most potent psychedelics on the planet, but it's so easy to administer, you know, like a, a 13 year old could administer it. I mean, you just put it in a pipe and smoke it. And so what, what happens is you have practitioners that maybe don't have a really sophisticated background in trauma or healing, and they see there's something they can easily administer to someone to have a mind-blowing experience. But there's oftentimes like this takes people into trauma release or really kind of dark places. The medicine can put you through, it oftentimes puts people through like a near-death experience. And so you have facilitators that these guidelines were developed in, in some ways to protect against, which facilitators that are kind of bopping around to different cities and like dosing dozens or hundreds of people in a week and then kind of leaving the city. Um, and they're dosing people like on the hour or sometimes a line of people, you know, there's, there's videos online of practitioners dosing like 50 people at once, just one after the other. And people are flopping around like fish on the ground and having experiences and there's no containment and you Oh, that sounds horrible. Yeah. Really terrible, horrible kind of, um, sets and settings with with this. So these guidelines have been developed to help kind of protect against that. Like I said earlier, you know, this this medicine is maybe one of the easiest to administer and it's it's really accessible in terms of you're immediately in a really powerful experience, but it requires perhaps the most preparation, the most integration to really have a therapeutic beneficial outcome. So I think you know, this this podcast may be going out to therapists that are going to be listening. And I think this is not something that is a good kind of first-line psychedelic for many people because it is so potent. And there's a real mixed bag of people that are kind of administering this from people that are reputable and doing it in a really good way to people that are maybe have more financial interests or not really just providing the the necessary context or, or care that's required to do this in, in the right way. I really love that Conclave has posted their findings online because to open source that wisdom is really important. And and this is wisdom that's important for any kind of psychedelic uh, therapy or kind of shamanic facilitation. I'm sure that there are themes that are consistent in terms of your do's and don'ts. And also, I think it's really important that there's a community, particularly in something like a gray market for a psychedelic experience, that there's a community that can hold others accountable. Yeah. You know, there's two really well-known five meo DMT uh, facilitators who were later called out by the community for their practices, and it's it's good that there's a community that can actually, you know, create that accountability. So I think that it's really powerful what the Conclave has done, um, and I love that it's. I didn't know that it was available, and I think that'd be a resource for it. Would you say that it's a helpful resource if someone was themselves going to go into a five meo experience, or is it really just more for kind of practitioners? Both, yeah. I think it's 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 helpful for practitioners, but I think it's really good for people to educate themselves about 
okay, the, the practitioners that have been doing this for a while, what are the standards that they're kind of setting? I think it can help people discern if the person they're going to is perhaps doing it in an, in an ethical way or kind of adhering to the best practices. And there's also some integration guides that the Conclave developed that I think could really help people afterwards going through an experience. And these the integration kind of tips or effective techniques are kind of unique to 5-MeO, so it's not something that may apply to other psychedelics. So if you're going to go through a 5-MeO experience, there's some integration tips that are really helpful that they've developed that's accessible. Do you know any of those off the top of your head now? I'm, I'm, I'm specifically interested in, in integration tips that are unique to 5-MeO versus other kinds of psychedelic integration. Yeah, I would say because 5-MeO DMT is so energetic in nature, it really expands the energetic body. People oftentimes are shaking or releasing sounds or moving their bodies in spontaneous ways. A lot of what's, I would say, unique to 5-MeO is to, to continue doing things that are very physical and energetic. And those kind of things practitioners have found, like, like getting a series of acupuncture after uh, 5-MeO DMT can really help kind of align and equalize or distribute the the energy in the body and help it kind of land in a good way. Massage is highly recommended for for the same reason to help people kind of drop more more into their body. I would say 5-MeO DMT in some ways can like really expand like the upper energetic centers of the body like the crown chakra or the throat. And so things that help bring people down into to grounding can be really helpful. Um, <laughs> this is kind of funny, but one of a one of the longtime facilitators that works at this medicine said, some t- the, one of the best integration techniques he's found after 5-MeO-DMT is for people to have a cheeseburger, <laughs> uh, which, you, you, you know, which you might not say after ayahuasca, but something that puts you in the back in the density of your body that kind of mm. brings you in. So yeah, there's a lot of physical things. And then also what's unique about 5-MeO is that it, it can continue to work on people in their sleep and We've called it the the gift that keeps giving, but sometimes it can be uh, intense or it can continue for for nights or weeks sometimes afterwards where people feel like they're going back into the medicine. So there's some supplements that can be helpful for for that process as well. So, okay, 5-MeO-DMT was first discovered through the secretions of the Sonoran Desert Toad. And now we have learned, and Hamilton Morris has done a good job of kind of sounding the alarm about this, that it's actually fairly easy to make synthetic 5-MeO or fairly you know, cost-effective to do so. Um, it does seem to make sense that we should stop harassing the poor toads and should just make it. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between actually Bufo with all of the compounds that are part of it versus synthetic 5-MeO um, and also conservation concerns around whether we should be, you know, should you smoke the toad? Is the toad better? Do, is, is it needed for, the, for an authentic experience? Are these toads endangered? And is the global appetite for this powerful molecule going to extinct this poor, poor little mystical toad? Yeah. I, I want to just take a step back to contextualize what you're saying. So, so yeah, 5-MeO was, you know, 
came into mainstream through the toad, but it's been used for thousands of years in, in snuff powders in the Amazon. So like Yopo. Mm, I didn't know that. Yeah, so Yopo, the, this comes from the, uh, a tree, and it's basically you grind up the seeds and you, you snort the, the seeds. There's a tree also, Varola. So it's been used, the, the, this, this tree, Varola, has 5-MeO in the bark, and, and there's resin, and they, they grind it up and, and snort it. And it's been found in like uh, blowing tubes or like bone pipes in the nose that are like thousands of years old. But that is a very indigenous kind of cultural practice, and it hasn't really spread that much. But so humans have been using 5-MeO-DMT for thousands of years, but the toad is a really relatively new supposedly new kind of discovery, although there are some archaeologists that think people may have been using toads. Wade Davis has a couple papers he published with Andrew Weil in the 90s where they they say there's all these toad skeletons found in South America and like temples, and archaeologists say it was a, the Bufo Marinus toad, which has a venom that's like mildly psychoactive, but not really, and they, they think that those toad skeletons were actually Bufo alvarius, so that like these... Mayan or Aztec cultures may have been using toad, but it's it's like speculative. There's no definitive links, but I've read through all the archaeological papers and seen how toad sculptures and toad skeletons and toad delivery devices and toad cups and and I, I think there's something there, but there hasn't been like a bufa alvarius resin in a in a pipe or something that's been found where you could say aha you know this was definitely used but i think there's there's definitely something worth looking at and along those lines so with with the toad there, there's definitely an environmental concern people that live in the desert say there's been a decline in species they're not the bufa alvarius is not technically considered yet an endangered species but once something is considered an endangered species in some ways it's almost too late you know by the time it gets classified that officially but you can see over time through through habitat loss pesticides global warming the numbers have decreased they used to be in california but they've kind of like the populations have dwindled and then gone more like south like into the deeper into the desert the, the tucson herpetological society is uh you know they're studying amphibians and toads and they they are tracking this, and um, people that live in that region say for sure there's been a decline. And the toads really only come out during the rainy season. They they live underground, and then they come out to mate. And la- this last year, people said because the the rain was so low that the toad populations were like a quarter of what they they normally are. So from a conservation standpoint, I I don't think people widely should be using the extract from the toads. It's not sustainable. It, the, the toads can be milked in a way that they don't uh, s- spread disease, uh, but it's stressful for the animal. It's the way people are using it is not usually following best practice guidelines for handling amphibians. I mean, the way to milk a toad is you you change gloves each time. You only milk one side. You don't milk the same toad twice. You know, there's a whole lot of rigorous kind of like protocols that you'd want to use to actually properly handle uh, an amphibian. And I. I I've heard of very few, if any, people that are that are collecting medicine that way. So I think for widespread, either psychonautic use, definitely for medical use, it's got to be synthetic for sure. And I think there's some groups like that live in the desert. These tribes that do live in the desert in this region are the the Seri and the Sonoran Desert, the Tohono O'odham, the Yaqui Indians. These are all using. Um, 
now using toad medicine. They, they, they have like histories of how they viewed toads like archetypally or as animal totems or animal spirits. And they, they have like a toad rain dance that's associated, but there's not a clear lineage with those groups. But I think some of those groups that live in those regions, I, I think it's, you know, if they're holding in a sacred way, they may have a relationship with, with the animals and the creatures to use it. But for Westerners or global use, there, there's no way um, in hell that <laughs> using toads is sustainable. And it, it does propose a major ecological threat. So 5-MeO-DMT, you know, we didn't say this, but we, we make it in our brain. It's, an, it's a natural compound. It's found in phalaris grass, in many plants. It, it's very close to melatonin, tryptophan, so it, it can be made relatively easily. And so I think the, the arc should for sure be to be using synthetic. Um, that said, it's interesting to contextualize toad, toad medicine in the, in the context of the field of toad medicine, which is also thousands of years, mainly in Chinese medicine. So toads have been used, toad venoms have been used as medicine for thousands of years in Japan and China and Korea. And there are toad venoms that are outside of having 5-MeO-DMT. They're very similar to the excretions of the Sonoran Desert Toad. And they're actually an approved cancer treatment in China. And there's like anti-cancer potential, uh, a lot of medical potential for the other compounds that are in the toad venom outside of 5-MeO-DMT. So they're the field, that field of medicine and Chinese medicine is called Wachansu or Chansu. And if you look it up, it's, there's a ton of literature on using toad, toad venoms to treat cancers and viral conditions. So it's interesting medically, but for psychedelic use, for uh, the psychedelic medicine movement, synthetic is for sure the way to go. And is there a qualitative experiential difference between smoking Bufo or smoking synthetic 5-MeO? Yeah. There's one little data snippet. It's the only data snippet that I've seen that somebody actually objectively looked at it, but Juan Acosta, who I mentioned earlier, he found he gave people synthetic and then Bufo and found that synthetic uh, it wore off more quickly. The toad kind of kept people in a state a little bit longer, but brain-wise they were pretty much identical. From a psychedelic subjective experience, the synthetic tends to be a little bit more reliably powerful, which it can be a, due to a dose effect, but with the toad, you just, you don't fully know how much 5-MeO is, is in it by, by weight. And from users and people that I've seen, um, it, the synthetic does tend to be a little bit shorter. It tends to be a little bit more visual, like 5-MeO-DMT, you don't always have like really well-formed visuals, but, but the geometries or the kind of crystalline fractals that come through on synthetic can be a little bit more pronounced or vivid. 5-MeO from, from Bufo, because of these other molecules in the Bufo, there's like steroids, there's other serotonin molecules that are, that are in that medicine. And so I've seen people get kind of more physical healing from Bufo or, or have more, more of a physical effect, which can be both healing, but there's also an issue with the Bufo. It has bufotinine in it, which can really raise blood pressure and cause vasoconstriction or you know increase heart rate and so there's more risk with bufo than synthetic with people that have like hypertension or at a stroke risk or have some kind of heart issue higher dosages of the bufo can be toxic to the heart so it's actually safer in some ways to use synthetic 
So what we saw at Crossroads, we were using Bufo. And I, I have seen clients that have done lots of Bufo, lots of synthetic. And for people that have had like physical issues, chronic pain, inflammation, gastrointestinal issues, neurologic conditions, I think the other compounds of the Bufo have had like sort of a an added medical benefit. But that, that all needs to be researched because it's not it's just not feasible for people to be using toads. But there's something in the toad, I think, that there there is some more potentially like medicinal benefits. But from a psychedelic standpoint, there's really no difference in terms of getting to that non-dual space, having that peak awareness, having the sacred experience, feeling unified, all, all of the kind of subjective characteristics that are psychologically transformational. The synthetic is is definitely comparable with with Bufo. And in my experience, that's what should be should be used. Well, just to kind of finish us up today, I'm curious what lessons 5-MeO has for the psychedelic movement generally. And one I can see very clearly is, is what you were speaking about earlier, that there's an entire paradigm shift towards better kind of somatic containers for healing in the context of psychedelic therapy. So that's like a big one that I think is a lesson from 5-MeO. What are some other lessons for psychedelic therapy generally and, and for the development of drugs or the way in which space is held for psychedelic healing? I want to come up with a new word or maybe somebody already thought about this, but like the concept of a sacredelic, that, that these are compounds mm. that, you know, psychedelics mind manifesting, but these are compounds that occasion sacred experiences. And I like the word sacred because it, it means that something is set apart. It's not, it's the antithesis of the mundane. It's something, when something is sacred, it should be protected and guarded and reserved for a certain time and space. And oftentimes things that are sacred are, are veiled, you know, like in temples or the bride that's sacred that's veiled. There's, there's levels of initiation that you go through to actually enter into a sacred space and they're protected. And you know, we talked about Bwiti. When something is a sacred tradition, you know, it's so sacred you don't even talk about it. You know, it's it's you have to be drawn to it or come into it. And I think the lesson with five meo is that this is definitely a sacred medicine, and and for sure brings people into peak sacred experiences. And so we live in a commodified culture, and. The drug industry is arguably one of the most extractive industries on the planet. And then you have this sacred medicine that's occasioning sacred experiences that people are having. And it, I think it, in, in many ways, the system is sort of ass backwards in terms of how to hold and guide and prepare and create the right framework for a sacred experience. So this is not just like another drug in a pipeline, in a drug development pipeline, this is not just like the next cannabis or the next psilocybin or the next MDMA. This, these are experiences that are the most sacred experience you can have as a, as a human being. So if we're kind of like to reverse engineer and say, we have a medicine that can create the most sacred experience you've ever had in your life, what, how then do we need to create the setting and the space and the context and the environment and the the ritual or the physical preparation, the the aftercare, the community around it. My fear is that, you know, this medicine, in a way like Iboga, these are initiatory experiences that classically have had the most kind of well-developed and held and symbolic 
types of containers and to just move this through an FDA pipeline or a biotech company that has no context or no awareness of what it means to create a sacred environment is really desecrating, in my, my view, it's like desecrating the experience. It's not the right kind of heuristic to have to develop this. So I think it's, uh, for the psychedelic movement, it behooves us to study initiatory uh, cultures and practices and to have a sacred lens if we have a sacred experience, we have a sacred medicine, what does that mean for how we're going to prepare people for this, like a life-changing experience? For someone to have their their existential worldview kind of dismantled and 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 reassembled and rebirthed, what kind of support do they need to how to view reality and how to move in, in the world? And what does that mean for people's understanding of God or their own you know, people reliably come out of this experience with no religious background and say like they met God or they are God or we're all God. And so what kind of philosophy or spirituality do people need to be reading or exposed to, to, you know, to really contextualize and metabolize this type of experience. And this is something that's, you could imagine if you're in a, in a clinical drug study under fluorescent lights in a corporate setting, it's kind of like the antithesis of where you'd want to be to have the most sacred experience of your life. So I'm really excited about what are the spaces and the places that this could be done? What are the, what are the readings or the, the physical preparation that needs to be done? Because in every culture that have these initiatory experiences, there's a really well thought out, beautiful tradition of, of how to prepare and go through that process to get yourself where you're ready to, to do this experience. And all the mystery schools kind of the climax of the mystery school is this kind of near-death rebirth experience. And all the mystery schools have a really robust tradition of how to prepare humans for having these transcendent experiences. So I think that's the opportunity in conjunction with what I said earlier about having a really more well-developed somatic, energetic understanding of the human body and how how we heal with 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 these medicines. And I think it also, the other opportunity would be all these psychedelic drugs are kind of moving forward in parallel, and they may not all be good for people as a first-line treatment. So 5-MeO-DMT may, may not be appropriate for someone until they've done a lot of ketamine or MDMA or psilocybin work. It may, may be more of a sequential developmental type of protocol that we need to put people through that would optimize outcomes. And I, I've for sure seen that people that have had more psychedelic experience do better on 5-MeO-DMT than having that be their first ever psychedelic experience. So... Yeah, I think there's so many opportunities with this medicine. There are indeed so many. And just before I ask you about the opportunities that you will be creating in the future, I always like to have a little moment where my guest gets to speak directly to psychedelic therapists, those people who are offering healing and support and space holding in this movement. If you could speak directly to those folks from your experience, your experience at Crossroads with, with your work with Ibogaine, with your work with 5MEO, what would you have to share? I would just like to salute, congratulate, and honor my fellow kind of therapists, clinicians, healers, guides that are doing this work because this is deeply sacred work. I think it's some of the most meaningful work that you could do as a human to sit with another human being through these experiences. So I think anyone who's doing this work or is called to this work, I, I, I just, I honor them. And, and I think it's important to honor yourself if you're feeling called to this work and to really um, just to learn as much as we can and to, to view ourselves as a vessel 
and to not overdo it, a lot of healers get into work. There's the wounded healer archetype of people that are, you know, trying to save the world or rescue the world. And I've for sure been uh, in that narrative uh, and worked through that and I'm still working through that. And so I think we really have to take care of ourselves and not overdo it. And these experiences are so big for us and our clients. We've been sold this like 50 minute therapy hour model, at least in, in the mental health field of, you know, a lot of my fellow psychologists are seeing 30 clients a week on the hour. And it's just maybe not the most beneficial kind of paradigm. So I think in the psychedelic world, it's an opportunity to kind of slow down and be in balance and really take care of ourselves as the vessel. Because when you're doing shamanic work or psychedelic work, spirit or healing intelligence is working through you. So we have to really boost our vitality and, of course, do our own work. And I don't think psychedelic therapists can can do wrong with taking more care and having more time to do their own psychedelic work. I don't. A lot of my colleagues, I, I think, are not doing enough of their own healing work in in some ways, or they're they're just overgiving, which is in some ways beautiful, but also not sustainable. Um, so I I would say there's that, and I think um, this is a one of the most exciting times to be alive in this in this field right now in this work. So I think it's good for people to really have support and community and colleagues that they're working together with. So not to do this work in isolation or independently, but really to, to learn and, and compare and uh, to, yeah, to have multiple voices. And I think we can't go wrong also by listening to our elders, ancestral wisdom that has not been super present in the psychedelic medical space. Uh, it, it is showing up, but I think we, we need more indigenous representation, more learning from people who have stewarded sacred medicines and plant medicines for, for hundreds or thousands of years in the, in the conversation. So, so to keep learning from our elders. Beautiful, beautiful invitations all. And you talked about creating a space a little while ago that we, we need to be immaculate in the way in which we construct spaces for healing. And I am uh, I'm aware that you're creating a space in Portugal at the moment. Is that something that you can speak on at the moment, or is that still in development? Yeah, yeah, I can speak about it. My romantic partner and business partner, Trisha Eastman, she ran a plat- has run a platform called Psychedelic Journeys for many years and did Bufo and Iboga retreats in different countries where it's unscheduled and open and worked with hundreds of people. And over time, we began to see that the space and the place is everything for these experiences. So we went to kind of the world's best that we could find of retreat centers and spaces and places. We went to many amazing places. And after a while, we thought, why don't, why don't we, we know what elements are beautiful and necessary and really optimize these experiences in nature. So why don't we create something? And so we found a beautiful place in Portugal and um, we've used our knowledge of sort of mystery schools combined with sacred architecture, bioarchitecture to create uh, space and structures for, for living as well as for uh, sacred experiences. So with the center that we're doing, it's not going to be a, a psychedelic or a medicine center, but we, we've kind of brought it back to the center is going to be focused on, on nature and the self, exploration of the self, knowledge of the self, as well as ancestral wisdom. So we're kind of building like a mini Esalen and a hot springs in Portugal to be a really kind of 
juicy womb space in nature for people to go and do integration and do self-exploration work. And the, we're really emphasizing the element of water. So this, the land is on a river. There's geothermal hot springs. And um, we've consulted with a lot of, we have like five different architects actually that are innovative in their own respect, but to make structures that just when you're in them, they heal you just by being in, in these structures. And these are kind of bioceramic concrete, no, no right angles, all curved architecture that um, are resonant with the land as well as the human energy system and aligned with the, the cardinal directions, the, the rising, the setting, where the, the beds are placed, the acoustics of the rooms, all these things were really, we wanted to, Trisha and I are both like artists at heart and creators, so we wanted to really create, uh, if we could create the most magnificent settings for human transformation, what would that look like? So yeah, that center is called Hue, and right now we are um, submitting our proposal to the government next month, actually. So it's still hypothetical because we won't know until we get approved, but uh, if we do get approved, we would be breaking ground like later this year. So it's very exciting. It's so exciting. Yeah. So for the people listening who want to keep up to date with your work, with your research, with this potential new center, where can people find you? How can people track the work that you are involved in? So uh, my website is just my name.com, josephbarsulia.com. And I have like a, a list of the projects that I'm working on. People can download any of the research that I've published for free. You just download It's accessible. And then with the Hue project, it will likely be linked through a newsletter. These are separate projects, but Trisha's website is psychedelicjourneys.com, and she updates people on the development of that, that project if you respond to the, the contact form there. So, yeah, and then once, uh, if, if that project moves forward, we will um, be sharing more online. But I advise a bunch of different companies and involved with some really cool a lot of other groups I didn't talk about, but some different nonprofits in the psychedelic space, some different emerging companies that are linked through there as well. Beautiful. Well, you did not disappoint on a on a comprehensive five meo chat. Thank you so much for showing up and giving your time and your wisdom and your insight. And I appreciate you in my personal life and in my professional life. And I love what you're doing in this field. Thank you. Yeah, such an honor to be here with you. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.